0: Welcome to this edition of The B Word, the show where we attempt to demystify everything to do with B2B branding, what it really is, how it works, and why it matters for business and enterprise in particular. My name is Jetty Tawash, co-founder of Branding Agency Design by Structure, and your host for today's episode, which we're going to talk about harnessing the power of brand with a friend of the studio and collaborator and client, Leah Anathan. So Leah is CMO of Muse, a game-changing, disruptive property management system of choice for the hospitality businesses that matter. Leah has a stellar track record of leading transformational and immensely effective technology solutions from e-marketing to e-commerce. So a huge pleasure to welcome you, Leah, and thank you so much for joining us, Leah.
1: Jesse, this is so fun. I feel like everyone is getting a chance to listen to the conversations that we always have. We've been working together since... 2010, <laughs> 2011, yeah. and yeah. and I feel like you and I both have standalone brands. You are well-known for how much you love to talk. I am well-known for how much I love to talk. The idea that we're doing this together in a podcast. I think if anyone is listening to this, you should go and get something to drink. Make sure you're well hydrated. You're in a comfortable location. This could take a while.
0: you start, Leah, by giving us a little bit about your background and how you got started in the tech industry as a marketeer? Because I know, I know that we all now know as tech and technology businesses as being stitched around us, as embracing us. But when we first met, technology and technology branding as a thing didn't really exist. No. And I think you were at the forefront of creating that. Or being part of that emergence. Could you tell us a little bit about your background and how it was that you got drawn into technology marketing there?
1: Yeah, sure. Well, I, I don't think I got drawn in. I think I fell into it because I graduated from university at the mid end of the 90s. I'm going to say end of the 90s just to be kind in Boston. And I think both Boston and Silicon Valley were sort of bubbling away with first generations of commercial software. And, you know, in Boston, I, I had the opportunity to go into a startup and it's funny looking back at it because I thought all startups did exactly what this, this startup did, which is it had people who had spilled out of the computer science departments of MIT and Harvard. Mm -hmm. They had proprietary technology for businesses that was totally unique. Nobody else was doing it. That Greenfield sales opportunities. There was nothing like it. And. This was a business that was filled with brilliant engineers, but they, they, they weren't writers. They weren't people who knew how to describe in great detail the value of what they had developed. They knew it was great. They knew what problems they were solving, but you know, the whole area of positioning and messaging and bringing products to market was something that, that they needed support with. And, you know, I had a history and economics background and I took a job that was literally like one level above removing the trash. These are, you know, it's it's the early days of software. Like you go, you'd be useful. They didn't have formal internship programs. You get in a building, you see what everyone's doing, you ask good questions, and the next thing you know, you're on a project. And then one project leads to another project. But the early days of B2B software marketing were not sexy. In fact, it was much closer to manufacturing because we had physical, we had physical kit. So my role was much more as if you were working at Amazon. I mean, there was an entire supply chain. You couldn't recognize revenue until physical kit had left a factory. And so, you know, you're talking about no cloud. We had our data center on the same premise as the office. You know, there were people who were running the data center. There were two major releases a year, very slow development cycles. Upgrades were a really big deal. It was maintenance fees. I mean, it was a totally different type of industry. It was a very, very interesting. It's a fascinating time. I loved the people. I'm still friends with many of the people that I worked with at that time. They were generous with their time. I think many of the reasons why I'm in the position I'm in today is because people were incredibly generous about mentoring. And I was working with some really, really smart people who had strong hardware backgrounds. So really, you were in the world of hardware more than you were in the world of software. And it feels like a lifetime ago. But I became fascinated with the idea of building products and launching new products and and technology that solved a major you know a major challenge for people and but the world of marketing was just it was nothing like what we have today i mean there 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 were foundational pieces there are some things i really miss about that time but there's a lot today that is just much more interesting when
0: it comes yeah. to the world of technology marketing what was what was that moment when you know suddenly marketing was at the top table in those technology in those mm-hmm. nascent, nascent emerging teenager, you know, first young adult tech businesses because there was a point, and I remember this from through you and I working as well, where suddenly marketing was at the top table, having yeah. been a function, it went to being in it, and and now if you stretch that forwards, so you have you know obviously you have SaaS cloud people talk about. People come to meetings and they talk about PLG, and you, you, you're meant to know that's product-led growth. And yeah. you know, people talk about that stuff. But there was a moment when it shifted. And what, what was the kind of change that drove that? Was it was it capital injection? Was it a sense that people could make significant sums, IPOing, floating? What, what were the kind of drivers of that change that marketing really sat at the best. table? There, yeah.
1: I think really it's it's a few things. One is if you get into the world of product-led growth, true product-led growth. You know, you have to think about the role that marketing was playing previously, which was much more of a support function. I mean, if I look back to my days at BMC software as an example, you know, the website was basically an electronic brochure. Sales had the leadership role in driving revenue. It was a combination of sales and then product delivering on great technology. But sales had most of the funnel. And and so they were in they were in the lead and marketing had a little bit of investment to support the sales function. When you go into a true product-led growth company, marketing and product are leading a hundred percent of that funnel. So, you know, when you and I were working together on the PrestaShop rebrand, PrestaShop was an open source version of Shopify. There was no sales team. Literally, you got a hundred percent of revenue coming through the website, the product, and you are responsible for all of it. Plus, there was a marketplace as well for additional revenue and a payment stream and all of those things. But it is that shift. And even when you're in a world where sales is still taking a significant lead, the reality is the way the buying cycle works today is that people are coming up with their short list of vendors without talking to anybody. So what they find about you online, what they can read about you, case studies, information on the website, sought leadership pieces, any of the advertising, any of the presence that you have at industry events, your media is all heavily influenced in in helping buyers to decide who's on the shortlist for this big project that I have. And that's all marketing. So. And the journey is that we're really in the driver's seat now when it comes to driving real demand, business demand and opportunity pipeline. The last thing I would say about that is the other part of the shift is you can really quantify and measure today the impact that marketing has. And you couldn't do that before because the technology wasn't there. You know, we didn't have the type of CRM systems or the HubSpots of this world where you could instrument Every single part of the funnel and see exactly what interactions are resulting in an opportunity or are, are causing an opportunity. And because we can now see, because we have the visibility, that didn't exist. You had no idea. It was all, you know, just a guessing game of how much contribution we really were making to the business. And the legacy behavior was, you know, marketing is just there for corporate branding and events, and it's all, yeah. You know, it's all very boring, boring kind of stuff. Now, now people can tangibly see. Yeah, they can the connection they between can absolutely an effort, can, an effort and, in
0: that place and a return yeah, here because yeah, you're almost. Yeah. You know, this this is this this isn't controversial at all, but you're almost right. moving from a CMO to a CRO role, yeah. or you're, you're almost a chief yeah. revenue officer. It's a very revenue-driven sport. Yeah, yeah it's quite interesting, though. It's like it's almost a kind of wider role. Some of the things it's, you're describing that you have to be able to do and be, you know frankly and bluntly pretty expert at are pretty wide. Yeah. So how do you go about creating that team around you with all those abilities to do, you know, on one side, quite deep dive, screen-based, you know, SEO, SEM analysis, you know, targeting emailers, then but also creating roundtable events, being present at events from the kind of physical to the digital, the digital how <laughs> How do you go about harnessing and 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 keeping abreast of all, all those different skill sets, Leah? How do you create that that team around you to, to deliver all that? It's
1: it's actually there's a few answers to that. One is that industry and and B2B marketing today has never been more, I think, exciting. It's very close to consumer marketing. We're taking in a lot of consumer marketing practices. The role of marketing in general is so prominent in the organization. That you know, I used to have to fight to get a headcount for design or not anymore. Not anymore. Everybody <laughs> gets it now. So it's an absolute pleasure working with the team and building this team. In fact, it's not just a pleasure, it's an incredible privilege because I've been in organizations where you just had to fight for every single half a person. And you were lucky if you got half a person. And today, because we're driving a meaningful percentage of the new business, we can build the type of team that we know we need for this type of a program. Like it's just one of those things that you know you need a a variety of skill sets and talents. Now, it's a multidisciplinary sport at this point. The one common thread is that everyone loves to deliver marketing in all forms where you get a big response. It's all of our dream is that we just want to connect with our audience and feel like, you know, the audience just got what we were trying to say and they laughed or they just understood how important the data was, whatever it was. And everybody is obsessed by that. You know, if their campaign or if their book or their guide or their article gets a big spike, you get a huge rush from it. Then within that, you've got this incredible team of designers. People are obsessed by web performance. You've got your content people. You have your product people. We have pricing people. We have market research and intelligence people. We've got, oh my goodness, we've got communications, regional marketing. You know, everybody that need to get local is so important. You can't just sit in an office or sit out of your home office and spray the web with all of your marketing and branding. That's wonderful, but you also need human connections too. So the regional teams are incredibly important at helping us to be hyper-connected with our audience. And I think post-pandemic, there's a real feeling of getting connected again and having human connections. We love being able to work in a very automated way. But it's time to have more human connection. So I think the digital and the physical events are equally important. And we make big, big bets on each of those areas. And there's a really incredible groups of people behind each one of these programs. Creative, creative, creative. We love our brand. It's so
0: important. So so you must have a series of like... Staggered metrics, so eyeballs on the website, you know, traffic to an event, sign up, yeah. things like that. How do you how do you kind of harness that into one significant thud? You know, MQL yeah. to SQL, or actually, is it not like that anymore? Is it like you you go to a pretty senior top table meeting as a marketeer, yeah, as a revenue generator, you know, leading leading that product like growth? Do you do you go to those meetings with you know? I'm thinking, I'm thinking of our, of our friend, Matt, right? Do you yes. yes. oh mind <laughs> <laughs> our friend, aka My class. Slightly fierce. <laughs> do you sit next to M- Matt and do you, do you say, look, there's, there's a basket of like indicators here that are really, really compelling. And, and we think that's led to these, these leads. And we can, we can draw us, we can draw a line, a thread to those leads. How, how does that work? How do you take those micro indices and create one, this month, there are 100 MQLs becoming SQLs. How does, that, how does that happen? How do you make those connections?
1: I just want to go back to a second because I don't think I mentioned the demand generation team and the demand generation team is so important, especially on this yeah. question. Yeah. Um, it's a journey. I would like to tell you that today, yeah. you know, we measure our success in marketing by, by revenue contribution. But that's a journey because I've been in a lot of startups where the metrics aren't there. So the first and most important thing is to get on the journey quickly where you instrument your funnel metrics and it starts with website traffic and then moves to you know definitions of what is a marketing qualified lead, what's a sales accepted lead, what's a sales qualified lead and so on and so on. And once you have that and the role of marketing operations and sales operations is absolutely crucial here. And these are again, these are roles that, you know, five, 10 years ago didn't exist. The role of operations in what we do is so, so important because you have to know exactly what's happening, what the impact is. And you do look at, of course, we look at the top of funnel metrics, things like website traffic. These are all strong indicators of, you know, the number of people who are engaging with your content. And we look at things like how many people are subscribing in the database to get more marketing from us. Those are all right, very interesting, but they're indicators. They're not the, the metrics that we hang on to. Let me describe this in a couple of ways. There are some programs where I really don't care how they perform from month to month because you know it's very hard to measure the impact of creative and brand And even in some areas where you're doing regional marketing, you're really localizing a brand. And I like to try to give space to people to test, to iterate, and to do things that are about communications. And that's hard to measure. And so you need to give people what I call high cover for these activities. Yes, you could measure the impact, but you're going to spend a lot of time. And it's really, you just need to know you have to get local, you know, you've got to do some PR, you've got to do these things and you take reasonable bets and, and they're there. There are other parts of the program where you instrument them like crazy and you track them like crazy. And, you know, especially when it comes to things like web and digital and advertising that you're spending, you know, those things are all highly measurable. And so you do. And once you instrument your funnel metrics, which is absolutely the foundation, then you can really start accelerating your spend because you can start to see the ROI of your investments in these areas. So it's just, it's base layer, funnel metrics, and then you keep going. And the first set, the first year when we had 100% of the funnel mapped, all we did was measure MQL performance because that was really just the getting started of, are we, can we predict how many, how many qualified leads we're going to be sending to the commercial team? And is it enough? You know, is that enough for them to hit their targets? And once you model six to 12 months of that type of data, then you can start taking on revenue targets where you say, look, this is the opportunity pipeline that we're going to need to drive. And it will yield this kind of results in terms of actual signed revenue. And it's a journey to get there but you can. So the conversations today are, I have revenue targets. They're reported at board level. We have a um, contribution to the pipeline today that is 40% of the opportunity pipeline that we need to hit our numbers for the year. If we were really SMB, you'd say 40% was a little low. If we were really enterprise, you'd say it's a little high, but we're mid-market, so it's right in the middle. I think that the business would have Would love it if we would take on even more of the opportunity pipeline, but these numbers are very spiky. They're very, very spiky. You know, Muse is growing at still very significant rates and we're over a hundred million ARR business at this point. So, you know, we're in the world of, you know, 70 plus, 80 plus percent growth year over year on at scale. So, you know, these are real numbers. These are real pipeline numbers. And yeah.
0: So we're at a place with Muse where it's like you know from the outside, and obviously knowing how hard you work and your team works, it looks like a well-oiled machine. But if we go back to when we we did that, we did that kind of that rebrand and that positioning work. What was the driver behind that rebrand and that positioning work in in your mind, in in Richard's mind? I know there was a there was an iteration of the brand that felt like it was all about the technology and not about the customer and the service but what were the what, what were those internal conversations before we, we met you and Richard and, and Vicky what, what were those kind of internal conversations about why news why needed to be to be a rebrand because I think it'd be interesting to, to understand that from your side because we always we meet you when the project's kind of happening yes exactly before it happened and the persuasion points before it happens yeah. what, what, was the, what were the conversations in the room before everyone went okay, let's do a rebrand. Yeah,
1: exactly. I feel like you and I have encountered this multiple times and there's usually a similar set of, of, of issues going on when you're about to do a rebrand. And I, you know, I think it's important to note that I usually go into a startup and that Muse is my fifth at about series B. Series A, there just isn't enough money for a big B2B marketing program or even one that's ready for scale. You know, you're working out product market fit, you're trying to get those first sales, you know, everybody's going to do marketing in a really really bootstrap lean way. Mm-hmm. And so what it means is that you're coming into a company that's been running with virtually no marketing but has achieved product market fit. Knows exactly what category they want to disrupt. You know, you've got all these criterias up. There's a base that's there. There's a really solid product that's there. I come in at series B. The investors get it. The funding is there to scale. And then all of a sudden, a whole bunch of stuff isn't ready for scale. What's not ready for scale? The company has no unique selling point in their category. They, When you get into the room with the founder and a handful of key people, they can very clearly articulate what problem they're trying to solve, why they're unique, why they're amazing. But you can't get the founder and three people, you know, who can tell the story into every single room. That's not going to scale. You need an entire company of people to be able to tell that story. You also need every one of the people who, you know, is a potential customer to engage with some element of your brand and understand what you do very, very quickly without having to talk to somebody on the phone, that they can visit the website or go to your stand at an event or see you at an industry conference on stage and somebody is telling the story in a way that's very crisp, that's very clear, and people get it. And you want every single person you hire to be able to very quickly articulate with a similar set of words this is why you choose us this is why we're here this is our raison d'être and 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 this is this is who we are and what you find in this moment is, is that the product's not positioned for scale, the company's not positioned for scale, the assets aren't there. Every time there's a new event, you have to get 10 people in a room to make a decision on the naming, the look, the feel, the whole thing. It, it's, it's, it's reinventing the wheel every single time somebody's in the room. And you look around and you're like, this actually won't scale. And in its core. And I've often ask this question of founders right before a rebrand, because these, these projects are so big. You don't enter into one lightly. You're about to change absolutely every yeah. single, you know, market facing element right down to the pens and the pencils. And, and for founders, this is their baby. And it's like what you're saying is I'm going to go and, you know, I'm going to go and put a tattoo on your baby. Are you good with that? And they get a little bit jittery. But the yeah. question I ask most founders is, if you have fifty people who leave your your office today and they run into their friends at the at the bar at the pub, and they tell the story of what your company does, do they use a similar set of words, or would they have about forty different ways of describing it between fifty people yeah, and if that's the case it's probably time to get into a room. And a product is also an area where I think a lot of people don't think about how important the product positioning, branding is as well. I mean, you and I have done a lot of product renaming exercises. Yeah, In the case of Muse, I think what we discovered is that the product team which had started in a very lean way and then was getting bigger and bigger over time and was building not a product, but a platform, a real yeah. platform. Yeah. Um, there's an entire, in Muse, because we run the, the operations that run hotels. So we've got the system of record for every hotel that's running on Muse. We've got all the staff-facing technology. We've all got the guest-facing technology. We've got the booking engine. We've got an integrated payments platform. Open APIs, marketplace, integrations, it's a platform play. And the product team had been building, building, building for eight years. I I just thought of them as people were like in these dark rooms, just building, 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 building. And when you lifted the lid, they'd forgotten to name half the features. They were just, you know, in the documentation, but there were entire feature sets that didn't have names. And there wasn't a naming convention to the product family. So every time they launched something, you know, there wasn't, there was, people were unsure what to call it. And, you know, product naming is as important as what you do for your branding. I mean, we're, you know, we're in software. The product is the company.
0: The company is the product. So it's, and, and, it's and going further. I mean, going further with that and thinking about that category creation as well, does that really help as well? Like, like, even if it doesn't become a category in the garden, sense of the magic quadrant, yes. but just the very fact that you have a phrase that isn't, you know, property management system. We start talking yeah. about the, the, the hospitality cloud. Yeah does that does that really have some value as well? Is that is that where the founders kind of go? Okay, this isn't just a new logo and some colors. This is actually quite fundamental. Is that where the yeah. kind of is that where they kind of I was going to say penny drops, but is that is that where it kind of falls into place a little bit?
1: It does. It does. I I tend to avoid this term of category creation because I think yeah. it's. It's misunderstood and it's misused. I think what we we mostly find is we find startups and founders who are very dissatisfied with a category that exists, that it is just the current solutions within it are, are, are not ready and not fit for purpose for the future. And they want something that's going to be fundamentally different from what was yeah. there before. And we're, you know, Matt and Richard, who, are, who founded Muse, Richard Walter, who's the founder and Matt Vella, who's the CEO. They came from the hotel industry. They knew how broken it was. I mean, most of the hotel industry is sitting on 20 to 30 years old technology. And it's, it never ceases to amaze me that an industry that is so core to how we live and how we work and how we travel is just sitting on decades of on-premise technology. And so they were absolutely right to tackle it, but it's a beast of a problem. And the name of the category that we're in is so awful. You, we just want to tear it to pieces. And it's called property management system. I mean, it sounds like facilities management when at the heart of the system is guests and travelers, families, families, And and experiences and and experiences and, and holidays. And for asset managers, it's portfolios of properties in these incredible locations. And it's, you know, these are physical buildings and they're filled with staff who have, you know, dedicated their lives to the art of hospitality. I mean, it just couldn't be a worse category name. So we have taken the opportunity to rename our entire platform, the Muse Hospitality Cloud, because that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to provide cloud technologies that just elevate the entire hospitality experience. But we are slightly anchored by a very old category name that we yes. can't escape.
0: Yeah, got it. So that whether in, in, the, in the sense of, of that delivery of that new brand, and, they, and those, you know, those ideas that, that 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 we had, and the ideas that landed, and 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 then this kind of acceptance by both Richard and Matt, the, the founder and co-founder. Were there any kind of moments where, actually, it was kind of that there was a kind of almost a, a synergistic leap? Like, actually, were there were there deliver, were there kind of deliverables beyond expectation? Were, were there was there an unlocking of some people's kind of energy and enthusiasm within the senior leadership team for what this could mean? And did the sales team get invigorated in a way that was beyond?
1: Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Was there a lift,
0: a lift in it?
1: I mean, when the rebrand happened and when we launched it, you know, these things, rebrands are not meant to be positioning the company for where you are today. Yeah. These things should have a shelf life of five to 10 years. That's really what you're aiming for. And if you look at the great rebrands, they last longer than that. Because you, you're developing assets that can, that can expand and stretch over time. And, you know, there are people who might be listening to this and thinking that sounds a bit ridiculous or, you know, somehow ethereal. I don't know, but it's it's real. When you have a very, very successful brand, it can be stretched and pulled and 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 made to be modernized over time without having to go back and do full rebrands. So jesse you must have a few that you you know and you love but we you know i we look at like squarespace has done a phenomenal job of of having a brand that has traveled well over time sonos unbelievable absolutely amazing i love their product marketing the way they layer color and image and product descriptions stripe stripe is their masters at if you go to their website and you look at exactly their product renders and how hard they're making the product renders work it means that they can be super light in the product descriptions on the website very quickly at a glance you see exactly what they're doing and exactly what technology they have i mean there are some there
0: are some really
1: really stellar examples out there
0: i always think it's partly because they're so clear about who they are and what it is they're doing yeah. And then only from that can you create something great. Like you need those foundational pieces in place. It's the reason why I yeah. think those brands that, that surround us and, you know, think about, think about you know, things like Nike and Apple, but also Stripe and Squarespace. They're so clear about what they are and where they start and stop that that they just, they have that success beyond the success they ought to have. Yes. Like, it, and, they, and they don't stray into places that they can get confused. So... Nike might create this incredibly lucrative Jordan range, but it doesn't go and create clothing for people to wear to work. They they yes. know where they start and they, stop. They
1: know where they start and yeah. stop. That's it's exactly. But there's a lot of aspiration. So coming back to your other question, when we launched the brand, we were launching a brand for the next five to ten years. Yeah. And I think what happens is you're able to you're able to create a vision for the future, and you're able to help your entire team as well as the marketplace imagine what they could do with your with your products and your technology and what the possibilities yeah. are because yeah. again you're in companies where they may be at young stages but they're being invested in for their future potential because they're on to an idea because everybody understands that they're solving something in a unique way and that there is nothing but 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 a future in front of them, that this is at yeah. the very early stages of being the yeah. next great tech. And so your job in the world of brands and marketing is to be aspirational, is to help people dream and not in some crazy gimmicky way, but in a very authentic way. I mean, I think the real, really successful rebrand is because you find the right set of words about what was there the entire time? You're not making something up. You're just getting to that secret sauce yeah. that ha- that literally people are just. I mean, people at Muse are obsessed with how to make the hospitality experience better through technology. We live and breathe this, so we want people to understand the passion and the secret sauce that we have every single every single time they meet somebody from muse or they interact
0: with anything from muse completely <laughs> agree if that rebrand, whatever whatever layers there are to it across all those channels that we talked about you think about that kind of funnel that, that filtering if at the core of it is is that truth that precision mm-hmm. that that really tight understanding of what it is you are i think about muse make it remarkable everybody's just trying to make that hotel experience better you happen to be looking at it through the prism and lens of technology but the people that the hotels are looking at it through, you know, what what what? How great is the cotton? How lovely is the silk? How beautiful is the drapes? Right, like everybody's looking at it their own way, but you're all trying to just make that really special. I completely agree with that. So, how do you think the role of technology branding, B two B B two B marketing, how's that going to change? Do you think in the next kind of business cycle, if we we can't go too far ahead because the world is changing so fast? But in terms of the pressures around, you know, emergent themes. Obviously, everyone talks about AI, but there's also people talk about, you know, ESG and they talk about diversity and they talk about climate. How do you see that, that, that those kind of what, what do you see the kind of future of B2B marketing and, and tech marketing there? That's not a small question.
1: Let me let me answer it in two parts, because we'll talk about the AI part separately. And I'm to be very honest, I'm still forming my opinion about it. And it may be because I had the opportunity to work in a company that did nothing but machine learning. So I, I'm cl- I was close enough to it to know there's a lot of stuff that people are calling AI that's not true AI. But let's park that for a moment because I think there's, the, there's a question about the role of brands and, and, and marketing and B2B going forward. I have looked at, the, at this amazing shift in the world's largest companies, and they keep going back and forth very dramatically between, do you need a CMO or do you not need a CMO? And you will have seen that maybe in the past three or four years, companies like McDonald's and Coca-Cola and Dunkin' Donuts and, and, and even Nike have, have removed their CMO and then brought their CMO back. And it is very telling because what's going on d- underneath the hood, when they removed the CMO, the two most senior people were VP, SVP of brand and SVP of growth. And that is the battle that is going on. And those two individuals were reporting into the chief revenue officer because a company like McDonald's was trying to figure out or Nike. Nike is, probably, Nike is probably a good example of this. You know, during the pandemic, they had a shift where they wanted to do much more direct business. They had previously been selling online both through their own store, but also through Amazon. And then they pivoted to wanting to sell much more direct on their own website. So the question that they have to answer is, for the next million we're going to spend in marketing, are we doing it on a performance marketing campaign to get more traffic to the website? Or are we doing it on a Serena Williams brand campaign? And if you take that scenario, that's the battle that's going on in many of the world's largest companies. And I think it's extremely telling because I even see the same battle in my own budget, which is how much more do you put in brands and experiences versus digital? And I would say that the reason why CMOs are coming back into these incredibly large organizations is because reputation and experience are coming higher than performance. And that's not to say that those aren't really important metrics. They are going to be driven by revenue. But the reputation of the organization and their brand is something that has to be protected. Because if you lose it, it's very, very hard to recover. If people don't trust you, if you, are, if you have some sort of a scandal or there's some you know, real issue within the organization that that damages the reputation and the brand promise, it's worth a lot of money to the business. And you can name the organizations that have been hit by this. Yeah. I think running right alongside this is AI and a lot of the experiences that will be driven by a machine and by an by by some, you know, by some machine learning AI-like capabilities that are going to be brilliant but no human is going to be involved and i think the exact same battle is going to play out it will be wildly efficient it will be something that we all have to tap into and there will be real advantages to it but at the same time there is going to be an incredible need for human connection the more yes. the machines go the the more that we want to connect and have real experiences with one another yes. and so i think that is where the brand and the marketing battle will be. And I am pained when I see, because we talk about MQLs and we talk about leads, but they are people who are coming to find something that is essential to their everyday work. And our software is a very considered choice. I mean, people's entire operations run on our software. And people have described our category of software. They have described changing a system that is a property management system like Muse as open heart surgery. Yeah, I remember room, that. Right? Yeah. And you found that in a focus group. Somebody described it as a brain surgery and somebody else described it as open heart surgery, which is amazing because it means they're not swapping the system out, but it is a highly considered choice. And when I see people being responded to by bots, it pains me. It yeah. absolutely pains me because every person who comes to Muse, whether it's an electronic interaction and they're just reading some, some information on our website or they come to one of our events, it's a human and I want them to have a really human experience. So I am pained by the automation sometimes.
0: Yeah. I think it's going to be, I feel like it's going to be a layer of automated interrogation Mm. that then leads to a shortlist where there's human interaction Is how I feel it's going to happen. I can imagine somebody at a very switched on business in the hotel boutique, Dick Ennismore, setting a bot off to go and check out a shortlist of websites and content for possible PMS replacement systems. And then when that bot has given, you know, has interrogated all these sites and gone, this one matches your criteria. You then reach out to a human. I can see that happening. Yeah, I think you're right. I agree with you. I think, I think we need to be careful about in an industry that's about experience, removing the experience. Has exactly. been very <laughs> careful.
1: How ironic is that? Yeah. that? But I agree with you. If I, and I, I wouldn't mind that either. I mean, if somebody was, if I was just getting a few questions in order to reach the best person I could talk to. That would be ideal that would be ideal
0: so somebody that's 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 an emerging CMO now, imagine somebody's you new know, really at the start of their career, possibly working in in a startup series A getting to series B, and they're they're learning like crazy what what kind of are, are there two or three kind of skills that they they really should get their heads around, like data analysis, like metrics in you know, creating dashboards. Uh, you know how to how to how to hold a room with an SLT with a, with a senior mm-hmm. leadership team. Are, are there are there skills that you see that people people really should get their get their heads around, Leah? Like given what we both know, yeah. Somebody that's coming up the path. Are, yeah. There, are there are there two or three skills they really should know, Leah?
1: Yeah. You know, actually, I mean, the first and most important one is how to how to hire and build a great team because yeah. you know software, and I've said this for so long. Software is just people and lines of code. That's yeah. all that it is. It is yeah. just and lines of code. And particularly where you have in marketing a very multidisciplinary program, you need to know exactly who to bring in and when to bring them in. I was just giving a talk a uh, day before yesterday about where do you start? I mean, a lot of founders will ask me, where do I start with marketing? Because you could start in so many different directions. And Some of it depends where you are on the B2B spectrum. But if you can put a small cross-functional team together who can do a bit of digital, a bit of content, a bit of creative, a bit of product marketing, you know, you could be dangerously good for quite a number of years with a very small but experienced team. So in the marketing area, I tend to hire for experience we tend to have more years of experience on average than some of our other teams in the company. And the reason for that is because I'd rather have a small team of experienced people than an army of less experienced people. Yeah. And in more, because you've, got, yeah, you, because you've got so many different functions that you're trying to cover, whether it's web, SEO, paid media, or content and campaigns, demand generation, inbound marketing, communications, and PR. It's, you'd rather have people with four to 10 years of experience and less of them because they can take a hill. So somebody goes and takes the PR communications hill. Somebody else takes the content one. Somebody else takes the product marketing one. Someone's on web and somebody's on demand generation and inbound marketing, and you've got a dangerous team. Yeah. Dangerous in that they can really stretch. And they can they can punch far above their weight, and that's where I'd start. And if I was a if I was a a much younger marketing leader, I would do I would put that team together. And I think you need to know exactly you know what skills you're looking for, and 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 what character you're looking for. I mean, people who get into startups and scale ups they have an appetite for change and growth. And they're ambitious with the capital A. They love what they do, but they're hungry. They're they're definitely hungry. And and you look for those, you look for that ambition. And and I'd I also I'd over-index on ambition versus necessarily people who are coming from a top school. Uh, yeah. you know, that is not as interesting to me. I'm looking for people who have worked their way through, you know, all manner of types of programs and skills and companies and things. And and they know how to they know what they're looking for and they know what they're aiming for. And they just want to be part of a
0: great team. We've seen that actually increasingly, that it's it's increasingly exactly to your point. It's about people that have overcome significant challenges or they've had to navigate. Significant moments and and what that's made them as interesting people rather than they would come from a place. I think that's quite interesting. I, yeah. I've always, I've always hoped that was the case, and actually we're seeing that now more. Yeah. So if you if there was one, if there was just you know just just I know if there was one single piece of advice that you would give your younger self or a kind of truism or something someone told you that you've, you, you've guarded as a piece of good advice that you might, you might feel able to share. Is there anything, is there a single piece of advice that you might give your younger self, or is there a, a single nugget that someone said to you that you, you, you treasure that, that perhaps you could share, Leah? Because I'm always fascinated by those human moments that, that alter someone's life course or, or what you might, what you might've done, what you might've said if you could go back in time. Is, is there anything like that, Leah? Yeah, there's probably a couple of things that tell my younger self. There was one thing that
1: I wish I'd, I, had, I had known. And then there's another piece of advice that my father gave me that was just a tremendous piece of advice. So the first one is, I wish I'd taken some time when I was younger to learn another language because it gets really hard when you get older. And you and I both have experienced this. We know that. Yeah, I would have taken a lot of time you can learn French or Spanish or both of them yeah. it's the time to do it is when you're in you know when you're in high school American high school as I call it or in university because you have the time and the space to do it and your brain is more malleable and it's easier at that time and you're less afraid of making mistakes and I wish I wish i'd I, I wish I'd known the second thing is as you're embarking on a career I remember calling my father and asking him as I was in that first software company and saying, like, I just feel like I'm doing grunt work and it's not very meaningful at all. And I'm, you know, I didn't go to university for this. Like I'm doing some, you know, some management reports and like making sure there's enough office supplies. And I don't, I don't see the meaning of it. And, you know, he told a really funny, not funny story of, he had an incredible academic career and then just as university ended, was drafted into Vietnam and found that he was in the military. And then he came back from military service where he was decorated into a massive recession in the United States. And he would graduated from one of the top business schools and was struggling to find a job. And so he quickly got an accounting license. And he told me about his very first day of work, which was that he was sent by an accounting firm to audit a chicken farm. And he was standing in the middle of a field counting chickens. And this is a decorated war hero. And and I said, fine, I'll go back and check and see how the office supplies are doing. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I think there's the, the I am amazed at how much more accomplished and fully formed. Many of the young people are when they come in my team. And they just, they're they're so impressive. And they're, they're much more, I think, developed in many ways, emotionally and just from an experience standpoint than I was at their age. And I'm blown away by that. I also think people need to be patient. And sometimes you don't always know where your career is going to take you, I meet the same young people want to know exactly what's going to happen next and where they're going to go next and what's going to happen next. And they really ruminate over whether the next job that we're offering is the perfect one for them. If I had thought like that, I would not be in this job today. Sometimes you just have to take the thing that's in front of you. You have no idea where it's going to take you. And that's okay, because. The unplanned can be an incredible experience and you might think you're absolutely rubbish at something and find that you're incredibly good at it and vice versa. The discovery process is scary, but it is so essential and you have to just dive into the deep and do things that you don't think make any sense. And, and do that and get lost and be a little confused. And it's absolutely the right thing because it's such a learning process as you go.
0: I think that's very wise. I, I think that idea that you have more time than you think is something that we all forget. Right, absolutely. And, yeah, I completely agree. So Leah, I just want to thank you. I, it's been wonderful chatting with you. Um, Wait,
1: we don't have another hour?
0: No, we not. We'll have to meet outside of the virtual podcast for- for This is our- this is a big conversation for the two of us. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. So thank you for joining me, Leah. It's always a huge pleasure to spend time with them. Thank you, Jesse. So thank you. Thank you. You what a pleasure.
1: We could have kept going for another hour easily on a number of uh, topics.
0: You're one of my favorite, favorite people to talk to. So this was an absolute pleasure. Likewise. Thank you so much for your time, Leah. It's hugely appreciated. Thank you, Jesse. Thanks for listening. And don't forget to join
1: us next time on The B Word.